Farm workers on strike. Greens housing fantasy. Inflation falls. Clayton's mutiny in Russia. And Victoria's windy record. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me for our 140th episode... Woo! 140! ...of The Week on Wednesday. That, of course, does not include the hundreds of episodes we've done on Sundays and special broadcasts and all the other wonderful bits of content that we have made thanks to you, our listener, and your support over the last... I think it's nearly, not quite, we're two or three months short of three years. No. We are. But of course, joining me, as always, is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, my wife, your friend, and the hugger of Germanicus, Van Badham. How are you, Van? Well, Ben, we're very open on this show, and I have been having a bit of a rough mental health week. Indeed, indeed. And I think uh, anyone who's lost a parent uh, who has suffered grief will understand that. And I think anyone who read your article in The Guardian uh, over the weekend will understand just how much of yourself you have put on the public record and how brave it is for you to do that and how inspiring it is to millions of other people. I know lots of people have reached out to you in the last five or six days in particular. And we hear from people all the time through the week on Wednesday, but I know people have been reaching out to you directly. And I want to personally, I want to thank each and every one of the people who have done that because I know how much it's meant to you. It has meant everything to me. The piece I wrote for The Guardian, for those of you who may not have read it, was about how I felt uh, hearing about the Brittany Higgins case again, uh, led by Peter Dutton, and the fact that this woman's private text messages with her partner had been leaked to the Australian and there was commentary that flowed in the wake of those revelations. There were political statements made by Dutton and the Liberals that were appalling and there were a couple of columns that came out where columnists were appointing themselves about as judge of who does and does not count as, and I quote, a capital V victim. And I was like, you know, there are millions of rape survivors in this country and unfortunately I happen to be one of them and I had reached my absolute limit and I thought if I'm thinking this way, I know a lot of other people are, so I wrote about it and wrote about what those political shenanigans were doing to the discourse and that did not come at no personal cost or no cost to you. It's been a pretty rough week at this end, but I'm really glad that I did do it and I think we need to speak more openly about it because what has been going on politically around the Brittany Higgins allegations has just been some of the most enraging commentary I've ever consumed. Yeah, it's absolutely horrendous. And, of course, the Brittany Higgins um, and Bruce Lerriman situation has uh, really did spark a whole wave of uh, change and demand for change, political change. And of course, the union movement in this country has been for many decades at the forefront of equality in the workplace and of equity in the workplace. Uh, and of course, drove uh, the campaign to make uh, a positive uh obligation on employers to ensure uh, that there is no sexual harassment in the workplace and certainly uh, no sexual violence in the workplace. 
And that those laws came, have come into place as a result of the election of the Albanese government and, of course, the ongoing campaigning of so many staunch trade unionists, in particular trade union women. And if you're not a member of your union, you should absolutely join. We say this on every episode. I'll continue to say it. I'm happy to say it every day up until and including the day I die. Because that way lies freedom. Absolutely. Because freedom from the oppression of bullying, freedom from the oppression of uh, bad bosses, of low wages. And the collective power of organising and standing in solidarity with people. It's fundamental. So you can join your union online while you listen to the rest of this podcast. You can go to Australian Unions au slash wow, that's W-O-W. You know, we've heard from uh, people recently that they play the podcast uh, to friends, to family, uh, to colleagues, uh, to workmates, on picket lines, like it's some extraordinary stuff. Uh, and then one of the big stories that we've got today is about uh, workers from the United Workers Union who are standing together against a bad boss who is trying to basically strip away their basic rights as workers. Well, yeah. So these are employees at Hussey and Co. Hussey and Co. are what we call these days an agribusiness. So these are the workers who pick and pack baby leaf salad for Aldi and Coles. Mm-hmm. And you'd think that that was a pretty morally innocuous product, baby leaf salad. But as long as capitalism has existed, my friends, capitalists have found a way to exploit workers and treat them badly. And unfortunately, the treatment of workers at Hussey & Co. has provoked them to go on strike. This is literally the first farm workers strike, first farm strike in decades, Mm, mm. and they've had enough. The issue is they want same job, same pay because there are – workers who are being employed as subcontractors. Uh, There have also been four occasions identified since 2017 where Hussey has been caught using labour hire companies paying workers through illegal cash in hand arrangements, which meant that they were getting paid. Can you guess how much an hour? As little as $12 on it. $12 an hour. That's outrageously low. And there's a much bigger industrial conversation at the moment that Sally McManus has been very loudly and supportive, around same job, same pay. Absolutely. And the fact that companies should not be able to use labour hire to bring in workers who are paid less than full-time workers and workers who are getting their proper entitlements. If you are a baby leaf salad picker, it doesn't matter if you're employed through labour hire or anything else, you should be paid more than $12 an hour and the same pay for people who are doing the same job. And Van, I want to I want to jump in on that because you know uh, some of the business lobbyists uh, and their mouthpiece, the the um, uh, the boss's pamphlet, have been very vocal in trying to run a campaign against same job, same pay, uh, trying to imply that somehow or another uh, workers who have more experience will get paid the same as workers who don't. And we've talked about this before on the show. Uh, workers who uh, work harder, will get paid less than workers who slack off. We know none of that's true. We have a whole awards system in place to reward uh, experience and and uh, capability. But if you are of the same capability and the same experience and you're doing the same job, you should be getting the same pay. Yeah, you really should. And Hussey & Co are not alone in this. BHP is a classic example 
where they own a labour hire company. They set one up specifically to hire workers to work alongside BHP employed workers uh, on lower rates of pay. Qantas, uh, as I understand it, Qantas on some flights have as many as 20 different employers operating a flight. So everybody might be wearing a Qantas uniform. They're all on the same plane. They're all going in the same direction, but they're all working for different uh, employers, in inverted commas. End of the day, it's still really Qantas. And in your, as the person who pays for the Qantas ticket, who who buys a steel product that's from BHP or who is buying baby leaf salad at Coles or Aldi, you're still paying the same company. That company is choosing, choosing to try and divide the workforce, pit one worker against another, and it's disgraceful. It is. It's appalling. And it's a lie as well. I mean, you and I both have what are called portfolio careers. Mm. Effectively, we are subcontractors. Yeah. And the way that, that you, the really easy way you can tell if somebody is running a small business and is not a victim of sham contracting is that you do the same work for a lot of different employers. So mm. I get paid to be a playwright by different theatre companies. I get paid to be a screenwriter by different screen producing companies. I get paid to be a journalist by different because that's the nature of the work I do. Mm. If you are picking salad, working for, you know, dodgy brothers and co labour hire, and they're the only people who you work for picking salad, you are a victim of of sham contracting. Like this is not how this is supposed to work. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, it, it's really so disgraceful and outrageous. We've seen, uh, and we'll talk about inflation a little bit later on in the episode, but uh, we've seen the price of food, fresh food, go up uh, quite a lot. We've seen large profits uh, in uh, our supermarket chains. Aldi and Coles have both had substantial profit results uh, publicly uh, reported or speculated on. And for them and their large agricore businesses to be ripping off workers at a time when those workers, you know, probably when you're talking about $12 an hour, like some of the packets of salad that Coles sell are more than, you know, they're $10, $12. Oh, yeah. There's I mean, they're some, big fancy, packets, there's some fancy salad out there. But the, the UWU workers who are on strike are making the point that they also need a pay rise because their cost of living is going up. Absolutely. You know, and this it's this whole chain. Like I don't want to imply that, you know, every labour hire company is bad. I, don't, I, I should have been more careful with my words because what I mean is if you're working for a labour hire company that's working for, that's subcontracted to Qantas or Hussinco, mm. and you work for that company for seven years, 12 years, 15 years, which are stories we hear mm. all the time. That is the problem. Five days a week, 12 hours. I mean, there's, there's stories here, right? Like Tim Tim Kennedy, who's the National Secretary of the United Workers Union, shout out to Comrade Kennedy, uh, says that these are folks who work 24-7 in the freezing cold to keep Aldi and Coles shelves stacked. The least hussy can do is back off from threats and intimidation, make sure workers are rewarded with a wage offer that is aligned with inflation and pay casuals above the bare minimum. So as I understand it, Van, the workers uh, were striking from 6am today uh, and were resolved to continue the strike 
until the company returned with an equitable offer along the lines that uh, Tim Kennedy from the United Workers Union has suggested. But that Hussey also have threatened those workers uh, if they do go on strike. Outrageous. Like this is this is just incredible. The United Workers Union had to file an application in the federal court um, to to stop Hussey uh, from intimidating these workers against taking action. Yeah, that's not okay. No, that's not okay. So look, you know, being and and I say being a member of your union because imagine if you're working on a farm and you're. Picking. You you don't have to imagine that you've worked on farms. I have worked on farms. When I when I was a kid, I worked on farms. I mean, you know, the kind of the kind of really hard backbreaking labour that that full grown adults do on farms. I probably didn't do as much of that as I was as I was rounding up sheep and helping shear them and and pick dags and all the rest of it. Did a bit of dipping. Anyway, point is, imagine you're doing backbreaking labour on farms. Picking picking is hard physical work. If you're picking on a farm. And you're by yourself, and the boss comes along and says, "Congratulations, you're going to get a three cent an hour pay rise." You know, if you're there by yourself and you're not a member of your union, how isolated that must be. And if you speak back to your boss, and the boss goes, "Hey, be grateful for what you get," or maybe there's no more shifts for you. Like that's the kind of environment some of these workplaces are, and, and that's why being in your union is so important because the United Workers Union was able to go to the federal court because those workers are standing together. Those workers are union. The union is the workers, and together they're able to go to the federal court. Together they're able to speak out in the media through their national secretary, Tim Kennedy. They're able to be part of that broader national campaign that Sally McManus, the ACTU, and the union movement more broadly is running to ensure that they get fair pay, same job, same pay protections. It's it's so important to be a member of your union. Just imagine the circumstances for those who aren't. I know a lot of people listen to the show already are, but if you've got a friend who isn't, play them this just this segment of this podcast before you give them any other episodes. Play them the first segment of episode 140 because let me tell you, if there ever was a reason, it's the salad pickers at Hussey & Co. You don't want to end up by yourself trying to pick food for some boss who really, really doesn't care about you. No, no, you do not. Van, talking about people who do not care about other people, let's talk about the Greens housing fantasy. The people who don't care about other people are the worst goddamn people in the world. I can't stand it anymore. Uh, Twitter is really, I think, part of my mental health break this week was watching just the unhinged. It's really hard when you're unwell to maintain your grip on reality. It really is. And watching the way that the Greens have engaged the housing debate has really threatened mine because they have spoken what I can only describe, Ben, is just absolute nonsense, just fantasy 
like unicorns in ship packets kind of stuff. And it's it's really quite disorienting. A friend of mine wrote to me today going, you know, it's just so hard to even get a grip on it because it is fantasy land stuff. There's no logical consistency here. So this the the background is, and we've talked about this before, Ben, the Greens are blocking the housing fund. The Greens are blocking the housing fund. It includes, uh, for those who listen who didn't listen to the weekend wrap, 200 million dollars for remote and uh isolated indigenous housing maintenance and repair. Uh there's also So they're blocking that. The Greens are blocking two hundred million dollars worth of regeneration repair of indigenous housing stock. I just want everybody to remember that the next time the Greens, you know, pretend they're so pious about first Australians. There's also been uh there was a news article uh recently uh on one of the commercial TV stations that was talking to a homeless gentleman about his housing situation, and he just said, I can't believe anybody would stand in the way of building more homes. Now, the Greens' position has chopped and changed over the course of this debate a few times. Um, They now are saying that they've delayed uh, the passage of the Housing uh, Australia Future Fund, uh, which is a $10 billion fund, which will deliver a minimum of $500 million a year of extra social and affordable housing, keeping in mind that in the financial year that's about to end at the end of this week, Labor has already committed to $9.5 billion worth of social and affordable housing financing through the um, the HIFIC or however you say it. Uh, so the Greens have delayed this because what they want is they want a rent freeze. Or a rent cap, uh, and the green spokesperson, um, the as I like to call him, NIMBY Prince of Brisbane, uh, had, went on seven thirty and was asked, "Would you settle for a cap? Or do you want a freeze? Which is it?" Well, we're open to negotiating. We're open to discussing. Ultimately, Van, what he's open to is keeping this alive as a campaign issue. Getting a lot of TV talking title nonsense. Did admit in the 7.30 interview with Sarah Ferguson, which, by the way, is a classic of the genre, that he hadn't actually spoken to any of the housing ministers of the states, the ones who actually have the power to impose a rent cap or rent freeze, because just one more time, it is it is unconstitutional. It is prohibited by law for the federal government to interfere in the rental market. It attempts to change that constitutionally went to a referendum in this country in 1948 under Ben Chifley and under Cuff Whitlam in 1973, and they both lost resoundingly. I just want to keep reminding everybody that what the Greens are asking for, the government cannot legally in any other way. Deliver. Now, in true Green style, their, their answer to this uh, constitutional conundrum. My voice went up by an octave. Yeah, is to put, is that the Albanese Labor government should simply incentivize the states with $1.6 billion to implement a rent freeze and or caps. Again, not entirely clear. Uh, it's also come out, by the way, that Green's policy uh, leading into the last federal election was to have a housing trust which in all ways uh, bar the name would have operated exactly the same as the Housing Affordability Fund. I picked up on this earlier in the week um, and I haven't shared that with you, Van. Uh, because I've been unwell. Because you've been unwell. But uh, that, that's that been going around online as well. Oh, my God. The Greens policy oh was to actually God. have something like this. Now, of course, 
the Albanese Labor government is saying, well, hang on a minute, you want us to offer each state and territory $1.6 billion or is it per county? How do you want that to work? The Greens are not very clear on the detail around that. Oh, no way. No policy detail from the Greens? I'm amazed. And 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 to be frank, the Albanese government has said, well, actually a number of states and territories have already ruled it out because the best research in the world on this consistently points out that it diminishes supply. And I talked about this on the weekend rap fan. Supply is the problem. Getting more supply into the system is absolutely critical, absolutely key. That's why the housing affordability fund is so important. That's why uh, renovating and renewing the housing stock that exists is so important. That's why fixing the planning schemes. And you, if you've ever heard Rose Jackson and the New South Wales Labor government talk about housing uh, planning, planning for housing, that's absolutely where the game is at in many capital cities is around planning. But now, of course, um, uh, the the Green Prince of Brisbane is putting out tweets. Has he stopped aircraft noise yet? No, he hasn't managed to do that yet. Well, he's been very focused on stopping people from getting into homes um, and tweeting about totally failed local government policies in other countries uh, when it comes to housing. Oh, uh, this is these are some classics of the genre. So this is one of the tweets. In San Francisco, a rent stabilization board determines how much landlords are able to increase the rent. This year the limit is 3.6%. Rent caps are used around the world and are desperately needed in Oz. Check out all their decisions here. And he has a link to the uh San Francisco City government. Now, I just want to be very clear about why we probably shouldn't use San Francisco as an example of peak housing policy. For a start, rent prices in San Francisco are 79.8% higher than in Sydney, okay? That's amazing. They are literally almost double what the rent is in Sydney. Hi, Sydney renters. Are you struggling with the rent? Don't move to San Francisco. You'll be even worse off. It's completely insane. It's also the definitive issue of San Francisco for anyone who has been there, let alone people who live there, is the absolutely shocking number of homeless people well, who cannot afford the rent. Let's let's talk about that because 70% of San Francisco residents cite homelessness among the top three problems in the city. On any given night in San Francisco, 38,000 people are homeless, and 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 that's gone up. That has gone up thirty-five uh, percent uh, since twenty nineteen. This is so literally more than like there's been a more than a third increase in the number of homeless people, which was already shocking since twenty nineteen. I've spent rather a lot of time in San Francisco, and homelessness is everywhere. It is. Terrifying. One of the most beautiful cities in the world, wonderful food, you know, beautiful architecture, really quite impressive place. No one can afford to live there. And and not Van, not only can they not afford to live there, let's put this into context, right? Because people might go, oh, well, maybe the, you know, America is a low wage country. You know, we know that. We've talked about that before. Low minimum wages, tipping economy. I can see people going, well, hang on a minute, Ben and Van. Hang on a minute. Maybe it's just that there's a lot of low wages, high unemployment. I know, low, very low unemployment in San Francisco. Silicon Valley is just down the road. Like it's a, it is a high uh, income place. So much so uh, that a survey found that of three thousand two hundred people who lost their homes 
uh, in San Francisco, the median income was $960 a month, and for renters, it was even higher. It was $1,400 a month. Uh, now, that is, in, in the American context, quite a bit of money. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about nearly $2,000 a month. So you've got people who are earning uh, more than minimum wage, significantly more than minimum wage in the US context, who are being forced into homelessness in San Francisco because the rental market is not supplying enough homes, because the cost of housing is so high. And that's the kind of model that the Greens housing spokesperson wants to implement here in Australia, where every single piece of research says not only does it not work, it actually makes the problem of homelessness and housing affordability much, much worse. Uh, let's just note, California is about to become the fourth largest economy in the world. That's one American state. And California is the state, obviously, where San Francisco is. California also has half of the unsheltered homeless population in the United States. And San Francisco, with its rent caps, are what the Greens think we should emulate. Well, I mean, it's just an idea, though. Like, it's just like we should just, like, throw in all the ideas. And it's like, is there any issue that has more research around it than the economics of housing policy? Because the economics of housing policy are recorded by every single local government area in the world. And we should also point out that, that yeah, and people go, but, you know, Labor's policy isn't perfect and they're not doing enough about uh, negative gearing or they're not doing enough about multiple. That's totally. We have talked about that before on this show. Oh, I, I want to tell another story, Ben. Sure. All right. Because today our friend has been tweeting again and because copped a bit of blowback about the San Francisco suggestion from oh, yeah. anyone who has ever been there, let alone tried to live there. And he's mentioned another city, which I happen to know, particularly well. And one of the things that amuses me about this is I get trolled online all the time. The Greens are very fond of trolling me, I'm sure. Uh, people who follow these things on Twitter know. They actually use a photo of me that was taken in Vienna when they attack me. There's a particular photo of me they use all the time. And I'm like, right, because I've spent a lot of time in Vienna. Um, the Greens housing spokesperson writes, in Vienna, 80% of residents rent and virtually every rental has some form of rent control. As a result, residents rent for life and often pay as little as 8% of their income on rent compared to over 30% for renters in Oz, 60% live in social housing. And I'm like, right, okay, let's just have a look at the geography of Vienna because I have spent heaps of time there. I'm not in the fancy places but with actual working people who live there and good luck to you finding a single-family occupancy house for miles and miles and miles from the city centre. Like, the reason why Vienna has this amazing social housing infrastructure is because it, it, their economy and their society collapsed in the wake of their mis the misadventures of their monarchy in World War II, in World War One. There was a massive, massive structuralized homelessness crisis where, like, a quarter of the population of the city by 1913. Here we are. Here's the fact: four hundred and sixty-one thousand people lived in homeless shelters. Twenty-nine thousand of them were children, and this is in the middle of Vienna. So, when the government 
collapsed because they lost a war. There was this brief period, which they call Red Vienna, where people who were given the right to vote for the first time ever at a rather nation-building time in the wake of a, oh, what was I saying again? War defeat suddenly had the power to build reams and reams and reams of social housing. And they did that through zoning and through high-density housing. I posted a photo today, and you'll share it when you post this episode, of one of the apartment buildings that a friend of mine lives in, in Vienna. And it is high-density, multi-story, great big neo-brutalist ziggurats built in the 1930s, Mm. and it is the same distance from the centre of Vienna as Thornbury is from the centre of Melbourne. Now, I would just absolutely love to see the Greens housing spokespeople go to the places where they love to turn up to harvest boats in Melbourne or Brisbane or Sydney or anywhere else. Let's go, let's go somewhere like West End or Morningside in Brisbane. Maybe let's go to Glebe or Newtown in Sydney. Let's go to Brunswick and North Melbourne. North Melbourne, the absolute belly of the beast, a place that became so demographically shameful you and I were forced to leave because famously everybody when we were living there the Greens ran a local housing campaign, not a local housing campaign, a local government campaign and had a poster that said stand up for cyclists and Ben stood there in the street, pointed at this poster and went, cyclists are not an oppressed class. And I was like, it's going to be Ballarat, Bendigo or Geelong and it's going to be a discussion we have in about 15 minutes and we've been in Ballarat ever since. But this this notion of, oh, we could just be like Vienna, I'm like, you tell them in North Melbourne. You tell Darabin Council or you tell Yarra Council, by the way, we're flattening all the single-family occupancy homes. We're flattening them all because we're going to build high-density urban housing like they have in Vienna. We're going to be, we're going to be Viennese in our approach. And we're gonna we're gonna have high density. We're gonna have uh, multi-family uh, floors. It's gonna be great. Yeah, I can see them really selling that at uh, Yarra Council. I just I just find this hilarious. It's like oh yeah, like Vienna's really awesome, and I'm like yeah, it Vienna is. is absolutely awesome. It is a fantastic place to live. And let's just remind ourselves of the attitude of Greens representatives, uh, like our friend the MP for Balmain, who is, of course, a Green, who said at a meeting to discuss a development proposal for some higher-density housing, think about how it's going to affect you and your neighbourhood and your local amenity. Think about damage to character when they bring more people to the area. And it's like, love, I'm very old. I remember when Balmain was full of working class people, Balmain boys don't cry, and the people who've damaged the character of the area are people like you. And it's just, it is extraordinary to me that this is getting any traction. And I think Mm. it's just, it's a frustration of people who want there to be quick solutions, and I get that. Like, I have lived in cities all over the world. I know what it's like to be in extremely high, like, rental and accommodation stress. I am a working artist, and let me tell you, getting stranded in London when you're unemployed and trying to make a living as a playwright Mm. is not a rental situation I would wish on anybody, frankly. But this sort of confected nonsense, as if people can't do a basic Google search and go, is that right? Is that true? What are the differences? Was there some context here? The social housing he's talking about in Vienna has been there for a hundred years. Like, and that's fantastic. And that's awesome. But let's remember the Greens oppose social housing. They want a hundred percent public housing. Well, that was their position two weeks ago. Social housing, of course, means ownership by um, yeah, co-ops and community corporations and things like that. Notably, can you imagine 
First Nations cooperatives. There's rather a lot of that in Victoria, which, of course, is not part of the Greens' grand plan where everything has to be public and we've just got to pluck the money off the money tree and nothing needs to be sustainable and we can just magic up some workers. Just magic them up from absolutely nothing and nowhere to build it all. It is shameful. Anybody who is giving credence to this absolute fairy tale guff is going to find themselves precisely where they are if they're in rental stress because the Greens have no solutions, they have no facts, they have no policy, they have no detail, they have no future, and they are not capable of doing anything. Here, here. Look, it's absolutely, you're absolutely spot on, Van, and I think your analysis is 100% correct. As someone who has had housing insecurity right here in the great state of Victoria, uh, who has worked with people who are homeless, who has worked with people in social housing and public housing and affordable housing, who has worked with working class people, who has worked in and with food banks, who has had to rely on food banks. The Greens' position is just unthinkable. And that's why all the housing associations have come out and said, pass the bill, because all they, of them, all of them, because they know, like you know, like I know, like, like adults know, that you make these changes as best you can, as far as you can, as often as you can. You don't delay for two or three months a bill that gets the ball rolling. You don't stop progress. You don't stop the building of new homes. But the Greens do it at a local government level. They use their power there to stop the construction of homes. They might damage the character, Ben. And now at a federal level, they're stopping the funding of new homes on some kind of fantasy notion about rent controls that has been proven categorically in other jurisdictions to not work and to damage the number of homes that are available. I find it really sad. I find it really depressing And I really, like I think about some of the people that I've worked with who were desperate to get um, to get public housing, to get social housing, to get somewhere to live that was stable and safe and secure. And I think about those people who would just see this and hear this and and would be so devastated. And that's why that I referenced that news article about the homeless gentleman who was devastated, because it is devastating to hear that. The Greens are taking hope away from people. Are prioritising votes that they think they'll win on the back of rhetoric, not policy, not action for renters, not real action, but rhetoric around renters at the expense of people who have nowhere to live, have no home to go to. And I hope, I hope that Adam Bant, the leader of the Greens, wakes up to himself shakes himself out of whatever funk or uh, catatonic state that he's been in as the leader of that party and actually steps up to the plate and leads them away from the cliff that this little princeling from Brisbane is leading them towards because it's damaging real people and real people's lives. Ben, I want to talk about some good economic news uh, before we move on to our next story because it does relate to housing. The cost of housing is continuing to rise, unsurprisingly, but inflation overall has dropped. Uh, This month's inflation figure has it uh, going from 6.8 to 5.6. The annual trimmed mean, as they call it, has dropped to 6.1%. 
Um, Stephen Kukoulis, uh, who I love following on uh, Twitter, the kook, uh, that's his handle, by the way, uh, inflation uh, in freefall confirmed, annual inflation 5.6 in year to May, down a whopping 2.8 percentage points since December 2022. He's right. That is a big, big drop. Uh, in, in the first five months of 2023, inflation is only 1.2%, uh, an annualized rate under 3%. The target has been hit. RBA has made a horrible error with recent hikes. Uh, and of course, I would uh, extrapolate on that to say there should be no hike in July. As we've discussed on previous editions, though, Van, one suspects the hike that will come in July will be uh, almost as political as the Greens' attempt uh, at housing, quote unquote, reform. There are only two political parties in this country. There is the Australian Labor Party and there are all the anti-Labor parties and they will do absolutely everything they can to take the wheels off a popular Labor movement. I should say that on the 1st of July, and I'll talk more about this on Sunday, there's a number of cost of living uh, things coming into place that will further reduce inflation. We've talked about this on the show before. The last time we had deflation was during the pandemic when childcare was made free. Well, of course, the childcare subsidies are being increased from the 1st of July significantly. Uh, we're also uh, seeing changes to uh, the way uh, medicines are dispensed and, of course, a 15% wage increase uh, for aged care workers along with a 5.75% uh, increase for minimum award wage workers as well. So all of those cost of living uh, measures will start to happen in July and Jim Chalmers has said that the budget surplus will be bigger than originally forecast. He hasn't given a number. I haven't seen one. And that's deflationary, everyone. Absolutely. You take well, money. Why don't you spend all the money on housing? Because you take the money out of the economy when the economy is in inflation mode and you put it in when it's struggling. Unemployment is unemployment is low. There's lots of jobs. That means that if inflation is going up, rather than burn jobs, which is the RBA solution by putting up interest rates. The government of the day can do two things. It can have a bigger surplus, and it can do that by reducing some spending. Obviously, they reduce the waste and the rorts of the Morrison era, and it can do things like increase some taxes, which it's done on very high-balanced super accounts, $3 million plus, and on uh, oil and gas companies. It could also do more. It may well do more. At the moment, though, those things have increased the surplus. The first surplus this country's had for many, many a year, and it is counterinflationary, which is good news for households. At the same time, targeted support on medicines, childcare, uh, Medicare rebate, I think has been doubled. These are all targeted reforms, energy bill. Uh, Desperately trying to increase housing supply. All of those things. So, look, there are. it is a challenging time economically, but can I just say, thank the electorate that we have a Labor government, not another extension of Morrisonism, not some wackadoo little princeling uh, from Brisbane in charge of the Treasury, uh, because we've got a very sturdy, very reliable uh, Labor uh, member uh, in, who lives in Brisbane as Treasurer. Uh, uh, the the rock from Logan is... <laughs> I think that's what I'm calling him. I don't know. I'm they making call him the up. Bogan from Logan. The Bogan from Logan, Jim Chalmers, who is navigating this very difficult situation that he has inherited from Morrison. 
which is complicated by the kind of nimbyism that the Greens are injecting into the housing debate. So more strength to your arm, Jim Chalmers, and the whole Labor government, because we want inflation under control so that the dollar of a worker's wage isn't eroded before they even get a chance to spend it. And, of course, we want to make sure that the neoliberal frame, which says you control inflation by smashing jobs, is not the mechanism that's used to maintain the value of that dollar. Instead, it's good fiscal policy, like the kind of things Jim Chalmers is trying to do and that all of those Labor ministers are doing across their portfolios with targeted relief and targeted support. I just want everyone to know I married him because he's so hot when he talks about macroeconomic policy. I can't even tell you. Well, you know, it's a, it's a tricky set of circumstances. These things intersect. We, people love to talk about intersectionality. Well, intersectional economic policy cuts across multiple, multiple portfolios. And Julie Collins' performance on Insiders I thought was very good because it pointed out that the longer you delay on housing, the harder it is to get those projects up and running, the longer it takes to get them completed. The more expensive it is. The more expensive it is and the fewer people get homes in the end. Yes, and Julie Collins, the federal housing minister, who, of course, grew up in public housing herself. So I think might have a bit of an intersectional policy understanding of what's at stake here. Absolutely. Oh, it just makes me so angry. Can you tell? I can tell. Now, Van, talking about uh, intersectional understanding, <laughs> when I think- I'm not sure that's the world's greatest segue. <laughs> when I think about Vladimir Putin, I, I don't think about someone who has a nuanced approach to the intersectional nature of uh, international relations. Well, he doesn't believe in democracy, so- So is it then surprising that perhaps over the last week, we've seen not just kind of like a huge threat to whatever is left of Russian democracy, but a threat to Vladimir Putin, who himself is a threat to democracy, uh, and then- Russia is not a democratic country. And then and then seen it fall apart in what is like the weirdest kind of, not, not as bloody as one might have expected why. Okay, so a Clayton's mutiny is a mutiny you have when are you sure you're having a mutiny? And it's all been very am I actually getting drunk from this punch or do I think I'm just getting drunk from this punch? So June 23rd, it all got a bit crazy. Um, Yevgeny Prigashin, and I do apologise to any Russian speakers because I'm going to pronounce the names in Biden. Yeah, I keep, I keep saying them wrong. Prigo, as they call him. Yevgeny Prigozhin is an ex-convict who's an old pal of uh, Putin's. He's a Putin loyalist. He's known as Putin's chef because once he was out of prison, uh, he, or, he organised himself many, many lovely lucrative catering contracts uh, to supply the Kremlin, the Russian government. And when I say lucrative, I mean the billions of rebels. His talent as a caterer was reflected in the, the 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 grace that he was provided by the Russian state. It's all very murky about running his own paramilitary organisation, which is called the Wagner Group. Ben, tell us about the Wagner Group. The Wagner Group is essentially a bunch of mercenaries that Putin has deployed to various countries around the world, including the Central African Republic, probably most notably Syria, uh, and as a result of the Wagner Group's uh, brutal uh, interventions, torturing people, executing people. Lots of raping. They're just horrendous, horrendous war crimes. Um, 
Brigajane has become uh, a part controller of of gold mines. Uh, 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 I believe um, some rare earth mineral mines, phosphorus. I think he's got yeah, as well, and uh, percentage cobalt and percentages of Syrian oil. So he's not a man short of a ruble. Uh, and the Wagner Group is actually one of the best equipped military outfits in that part of the world. Um, probably the second best army in. Uh, in the Ukraine-Russia area is the Wagner Group, uh, obviously following the Ukrainian army, um, certainly miles ahead of the Russian army. So when he decided he was going to arc up and I've had enough of all of this, you're all a bunch of losers losing this war and killing my men, keeping in mind the Wagner Group is made up of two group, three groups of people. The first group is disgraced former special forces people who are kicked out of the Russian army. Those people end up becoming officers and leaders. What do you have to do to get kicked out of the Russian army? Oh, my God. Usually it involves a sledgehammer, people's extremities, and then a really horrible uh, decapitation. It's horrendous. Don't look it up online. Yeah, the sledgehammer is the symbol of the of the Wagner Group, and it's used in executions of people. That's Please why. do not look that up. Do online. not look it up. They, don't they do They pride it. themselves on posting that stuff up, and it's don't look at it. It's inhuman. Um, so so you've got that group. You've got uh, the kind of just generally disgraced Russian military personnel who end up finding their way into the Wagner Group, uh, and then you've got the prison dregs that Prigogine uses as cannon fodder. So he was allowed to recruit from prisons. You're talking about people here who are generally malnourished, who are often under-equipped. HIV positive. Many of whom have not had any treatment for their medical ailments. And there are some, again, horrendous videos of what's been happening um, in the war uh, in Ukraine because these people cannot physically fight. Um, so it's it's a real mixed bag, but they are very well equipped. Mixed bag. Can, I can't underline mi- mixed bag enough. There are actual convicted serial killers who've been fighting for Wagner in Ukraine. Yeah. And he, I mean, Prigogine, and I discussed this a little bit on last week's um, Weekend Wrap, but, you know, Prigogine had brutally used the Wagner Group to secure Bakhmut. He handed it over to uh, the Russian forces and the Russian forces have gradually lost more and more of it. Now, there's been internal politics in Russia between Prigogine and the Minister for Defence, who, of course, wants control of this well-equipped uh, you know, group. I'm not sure he cares so much about the convicts, but the well-equipped group, the uh, not, I wouldn't say disciplined, but good fighters, you'd call them. Because the Russians, I mean, their casualty rate is extraordinary in Ukraine. Like they're attempting to, usually a war of attrition is when you're sacrificing people in defence of a homeland and it's uh, kind of the other way around in the the Ukrainian theatre where the Russian plan of attack is just to throw waves and waves and waves and waves of Russian soldiers at the Ukrainians who just mow them down as if the idea is that the Ukrainians will get tired of drowning in Russian blood. That seems to be the tactic. And so the Ukrainian government has um, has, uh, lists of casualties 
presumed list of casualties because it could be a lot worse. Mm. In literally, there are around two hundred twenty-five thousand Russian casualties to the Ukrainians now. Yeah, Prigozhin said when he took Rostov on Don during this Clayton's mutiny, he actually did a broadcast where he said that they're losing a thousand men a day. Yeah, which is which is bad. Like they're not they're not good odds. No, and of course that's now coming home. Every individual sociologists talk about how every individual essentially has a social network of 150 people. If you times 150 by 250, it's a big number. Mm. It's a very big number. So the war is really coming home to Russians, even though what they're getting at home is all this propaganda about how everything's fine and they're denazifying Ukraine and the dog is crushing my arm and registering his descent to Russian autocracy. You're very cute, Germanicus, and very loyal. And so there are problems now on the home front. Remember that it was the resentment of military families towards casualties that were never accounted for in Russia's disastrous adventure in Afghanistan in the the late 70s, early 1980s that really put a lot of the impetus behind people like Gorbachev and, you know, Mm. were the sort of engine of reforms when Russia had that, you know, 10 minutes of democracy in the 1990s. But, of course, Putin has now been in power for 22 years. There's all the constitution to essentially make himself leader for life, the sham elections and the rest of it. But the problems remain that you can only only kill so many people between the, before the structures of your power start weakening. Then you have Prigogine, Prigo, with his professional military force, battle-hardened in theatres in Africa, mm. Venezuela, all over the place, Syria, obviously, going, we can win this war. The generals are stupid. Gerasimov and uh, Shoigu, who's the mm. Minister for Defence, is the career soldier, you know, they're trying to recruit Wagner people into the Ministry of Defence because they want to take credit for our victories. Well, we're, gonna, we're going to... That I want their heads. Like literally, demands were made of Putin for um, for Gerasimov and Shoigu to be delivered to Prigogine when he took over Rostov on Don. So what happened was this was the first stage. Rostov on Don is a city very close to the border with Ukraine, and the Ukrainians didn't take it over because the Ukrainians are not fighting on Russian territory. Mm. Uh, Wagner Group did. They mm. literally occupied it. And from that point, it all happened very quickly that all of a sudden the 25,000-person Wagner force, and apparently they control, uh, they have a force of 50,000 worldwide, were marching on Moscow. Mm. And what was conspicuous, Ben, was what were they not encountering on their way to Moscow? Any resistance? No, it all fell apart really quickly. And they were hoovering up, you know, they were transporting tanks and their heavy vehicles on the backs of semi-trailers so they were getting around sort of anti-tank limitations and they literally, the the lines of defence that Mm. Moscow had put up to stop them were dump trucks filled with sand. Yeah. They brought helicopters to dissuade them from taking the city and they shot them down like 15 Russian soldiers were killed by other Russians from Wagner and all of a sudden it was very, very clear that there was not going to be strong enough defence. The Russians don't have the defensive material no. to stop invasions of their capital. No. Well, as I said on the weekend wrap, the, none of the, the Fortress Moscow plan that was being enacted, there was no footage of any tanks. So while the Wagner group were having uh, had tanks, have T-90s, which is a decent main battle tank, Certainly a match for a dump truck full of sand. Maybe not a match for an Abrams or a Leopard, but certainly a match for a dump truck full of sand. Um, Putin didn't seem to have any 
uh, tanks in Moscow, and yet somehow or another van, uh, it all stopped. It did. It stopped. I mean, this happened five days ago, and it's it's just bizarre what's happened since. Putin came out and said the people who are doing this are traitors, but he didn't mention Prigozhin directly. And then somehow this bizarre statement comes out that Alexander Lukashenko, who's the dictator of Belarus, who's a Russian puppet, who's a Putin puppet, Mm. he was like, no, no, I've called Yevgeny, everything's fine. Yevgeny's going to, Prigozhin's going to come to Belarus and stay here and, you know, guys, you know, you've got a war to win, so let's just all cool off and let's be cool. And this seems to be where we're at. So the authority of Putin, which is based on, you know, supremacy violence, mm. essentially, that Putin is willing to put more people in prison than anybody else, which is why you have these, like, gulags full of criminals in uh, in Russia, is letting somebody who literally rolled tanks against the capital, demanding the heads of the military leadership while there is a war on, he's just going to hold up in Belarus for a while and just chill out a bit. It's very bizarre. Lower the temperature, man. It's very bizarre. It's very bizarre. I I, I still don't really know. Uh, I mean, I didn't know on Sunday. I'm not sure I know much more today than I did on Sunday, frankly, about what's actually going to happen. Uh, uh, I think I, I read somewhere that Shoigu is under investigation now um, uh, for, for theft from the military. Frankly, would not be uh, a difficult case to prove because they're all stealing from the country all the time, like it is a gangster state. Well, this is what people are saying. Like Westerners are so confused. Like what? why would you attack your own capital during your own war? Like this is madness until you think of them in terms of warlords. And yeah. warlords are just about who's got a monopoly on violence where. Wagner's got a monopoly on violence amongst its 50,000 mm. who are obviously outperforming the general Russian army. Uh, in terms of their engagements, but it's, you know, they're all sort of positioning. But somebody made this really good point online, which was Russia is a place where you can literally get hard time for being in a feminist punk band or putting up a sticker that says stop the war, but you can literally roll tanks on the Capitol and run a mutiny and then you can just chill out in Belarus for a while. It's totes cool, guys. Yeah, look, it is it is a gangster state. You and I have both been there. It is not a place where the rule of law applies. No. There is no There is no democracy. There is no justice. Vladimir Putin is a dictator. He is, uh, he is an aggressive dictator. He is in, involved in a war. He started a war of aggression against Ukraine. It's been good to see uh, Australia provide more support. Uh, I believe the US has provided more support. Europe is providing more support as well to Ukraine. Uh, as this has unfolded, because of course Ukraine uh, was beginning their offensive anyway. Uh, now it looks as though that offensive is having some good success. Yes, had rather the re- morale boost. I think is the term. Like, if you, if you want to watch videos online, watch the videos of the uh, Ukrainian soldiers uh, eating popcorn, watching the um, the Clayton's coup. Uh, on their laptop, eating popcorn out of ammunition um, boxes and uh, uh, expended artillery shells. That's that's good. That's good online content. Oh, and awesome fun. For and the they're having Zelensky's put out statements saying this is what we were telling you about Russia. Like the moral path of violence is always destruction, and this is who they are. And what's relevant about what's going on is clearly there's a pretty large division going on that could mm. get very violent. 
nobody thinks that this is going to go away. Putin has been destabilised and the analysis is that it's showing that a lot of powerful elites in Russia didn't necessarily pick a side because they thought Prigogine might win. So the idea of this being bloodless and everybody standing down and chilling out Belarus and the rest of it, that that is actually that's a, a sign of the weakening authority of Putin and his ability to hold that together, which is based on, you know, propaganda and illusion mm. and the rest of it. But the real outcome has been the Ukrainians have had a real shot in the arm and are making gains of territory everywhere. So, you know, Fantastic. always in motion is the future. Always in motion is the future. Wise words from Yoda. Ben, look, uh, we should finish up with some good news uh, beyond just uh, Ukraine's uh, increasing success uh, in its war against uh, the gangster state of Putin's Russia. Uh, Victoria has set a new record uh, for wind energy production. Now, while while you find the list of supporters that you'll read out shortly, let me just give people the good news here that in the month of June, uh, Victoria set a new record for uh, wind energy output. Uh, it showed that a record output of 3,542 megajoules, that's M million watts, uh, was uh, set. It easily beat the previous record of 3,313. That was in September last year. At the peak output, the wind energy accounted for 58% of Victoria's demand and sent the wholesale price of electricity down to $8 a megawatt. Now, uh, that's incredible. That's incredible. Uh, Victoria has sourced an average of 40% of its electricity from renewables in the last 12 months. It aims to get that to 95% by 2035. Now, when conservatives attack renewable energy, they do so from a place of ignorance, bias, uh, and vested interest because we know that well-constructed by union members, well-maintained by union members, renewable energy is, when it's in operation, far cheaper than any other source of energy. We live in a wind town. We love it. And that's a fantastic new record for Victoria. Uh, we should be capturing wind just as we capture solar and of course, battery technology, the new transmission arrangements that are likely to come in all over the country are all good news for, not just for the environment, but for the price of electricity in the medium and long term. I know people are suffering now, uh, but this is the, the suffering that we incur now on any given day, on any given topic, is not because of decisions that are being made today, but decisions that were made in the past. And a decade of inaction and and mismanagement uh, from the Morrison era is catching up with us, and that's why we're paying higher prices now. Because when we have renewables, the price can drop as low as eight dollars a megawatt hour. That's fantastic. This is great news. We can get that price down. We need that investment. Labor's delivering it. We've got to get there. Do not let conservatives spin a lie about. Uh, renewable energy because it will deliver and is delivering cheaper prices. Now, Van, speaking of delivering, we deliver this podcast every Wednesday 
And on Sundays, we do a weekend wrap. We are rapidly approaching a million downloads. Get my party. We are now- Get my party. Over 40,000 downloads every month. Get my party. And we, it happens because people listen to the show, they share the show, they like it, they comment, they engage. There's all sorts of commentary. Uh, people send us emails. If you've got questions, I'm trying to answer questions on Sundays. Send them across to us the week on Wednesday at gmail.com. Uh, you can try and send them on social media too. If I catch them there, I'll put them in the mix. But of course, people make a financial contribution. The show will always be free to listen to, always free to download. But for those who can. But it's not free to make. It's not free to make. It's not free to make. So we do really appreciate those of you who have capacity, who are supporting us to do the show. It means everything to it. And every dollar goes into the show, right? We don't take any money out of that for any purpose other than the show, whether it's advertising, sometimes equipment. You'll notice our sound quality may not be necessarily at the highest standard. No. But our content. Our content comrades, that's where we focus our I mean, attention. the love is very real, even if the sound quality is not aspirational. Um, and building our audience. And that's where your contributions come into play, whether you're giving once, whether you're giving a buck a week, whether you're one of our Extend the Reach supporters who gives $10 a month or one of our cadre who chips in 20 bucks a month. Your support makes growing the audience and getting the message to more people possible. So every week on Wednesday episode, Van will read out the names of our cadre and our Extend the Reach supporters. Van, you got that list there? Yeah. Go ahead. Joe Lockery, Steph Karina, Bali, Chancey, Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Ann Coleman, Ross Ken 888, Bromman, Cockington, Terry, Butler, Jack Powell, Gail Ferguson, Rebecca Fanning, Falonman, Matthew Hadley, Colum Kelly, Ali Vance, Mary M, Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti, Annie Balden, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Rabouris, Greg, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, at Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Bromman, Punchdunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Andrew Pascal, Cassandra Tui. Pasco, sorry. Uh, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me. Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, no relation. Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter. Glenn Robbie, Bresh Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles. I don't have Twitter. My name is Susan Myers, at Gary Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Narissa Simon, at Katagol, Laura Nash and Banjo, Naronga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Red, what, Louise Watson, Red, White and Blue Lou. And extend the reach supporters. Uh, Stuart Munn, Blagoya, Matthew Case, Marky Mark, at Vic Embid, Adrian Villante, Mazaritza at Carydale 68, Frank Nahus, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur Pauline, Bate, Shane Horse, Helen, Janet McCalman, Jeremy Mal, Rosie Elliott, Lara at Robert Notfield One, Michael Wales, Sanj Kelly, Darina, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron, Tridragon, Daniel at Crazy Kezza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennell, Anna Uren, Kathy Burgess, Melanie, Denning, Jody A, not on Twitter, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, S. Wood at Dedham's, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Nandita Hannum, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Hyndon at Galvez, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah Elian and Andrew Ivis Billet, Andrew Bryan, Pierre C, Linda, Sam Hadid, Kim Patterson, Lizette, Twistle Bunker, Basha, Katie Ward, at the Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart at Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. And we have a lot of new subscribers, so if I've got your name wrong, you must tell us. Yes, do tell us. Don't forget to send in your questions for me to try and answer on the weekend wrap on Sunday. Until then, keep an eye out for Van in The Guardian. Uh, and and I'm sorry about all the beeping from my computer. I couldn't turn it off because the dog is on my arm. That's all right, darling. <laughs> no one listens to this show for the sound quality, right? Until next week. Love you, Van. I love you too. You've been amazing. Bye. Bye.